When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and recommend. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. If you love to read, please consider joining my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month, one where I talk about the next month's most anticipated books and one where I chat with an independent bookseller, all about their store and the books that they recommend. In addition, I host a monthly early read where members have advanced access via NetGalley to a digital copy of a book, and then we meet on Zoom with the author pre-publication to chat about that book. January's book is The Sweet Spot by Amy Popel, and for February there are two. Lauren Willig's new book, Two Wars and a Wedding, and a debut by Lee Abramson called A Likely Story. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, Kelly Hooker is back to chat with me about our favorite books of 2022. In this episode, we each talk about our top 12 books of the year. Kelly and I also recorded a special Patreon episode where we do a deeper dive into books we read in 2022. Kelly is an avid reader, reviewer, and bookstagrammer. She works part-time as a speech pathologist in Michigan. She has three young boys and firmly believes that nap time is for novels. Kelly is also an audiobook enthusiast and loves hosting book club reads and author events. She creates seasonal reading guides to help readers pick up the right book at the right time. I always love discussing books with Kelly, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as well. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Welcome, Kelly. How are you today? I am doing great, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me um, to chat books again. I'm happy to be back. I am so glad you're back. And I'm really excited about this episode because each quarter of the year, you and I have gotten together and talked about our favorites for that particular quarter. But now we're going to talk about our top 12 for the entire year like we did last year. And I cannot wait to hear what is on your list. I'm so excited to hear yours as well. I know we'll have a few overlaps, but I think that we'll have some surprises too. Exactly. And that's always fun, the surprises. I think so. 
2022 has been a bit of a different reading year for me. The last couple of years, I've read a lot of nonfiction, and I was looking back and realizing I hadn't read nearly as much this year. And instead, I have read more thrillers because I'm not generally a huge thriller reader, but there were a lot of good ones that came out this year. And I think that the thrillers were a great way for me to escape into another world with everything that happened in 2022. It was just kind of a nice release for me. That's so interesting to hear just how your reading changes and your taste can change a little bit based on what's going on with your life. And I noticed the same thing too, just being, you know, very pregnant and then having um, the baby and in July, I felt like I wasn't liking as many books, especially around that time of year, just because it's just hard to get into a story when you're going through a big life transition like that. But I noticed that I, I definitely didn't read as much nonfiction as I normally do. And I also was leaning more into character-driven stories. And really a few years ago, I didn't really enjoy that type of story at all or that pacing. But when I'm looking back on my year as a whole, those were some of the books that had the most staying power with me, which I thought was interesting. Did you notice any other themes in your reading like that? Well, I definitely noticed that I was enjoying intergenerational stories. I think that There's so much you can gain from people that are of a different age than you. You and I have talked about this some, and there'll be one of my books that we've talked about before that kind of reminds us of our friendship, and that'll be on the list and we'll be talking about it. But I think that was one of the themes that I really liked. And also all of these community stories, stories found family or bringing groups together and just things like that. I think happier stories were working better for me this year. Yeah, I... I can see that as well. And just looking back at some of the books that landed in my top 12, a lot of them are people facing hardships, but then within that, finding unexpected connections, banding together in really, I don't know, just really beautiful ways. And so heavier themes, but ultimately hopeful. I think after living through three years of the pandemic and then the losses that I've had, I think connection is something that's really important to me, and I have found that's what's carried me through a lot of this. And so I think finding that in stories and understanding that that is something that really brings us together or that that the importance of connection for helping us survive has been such an important thing for me myself. Yeah, I think a lot of people will resonate with that too. And I was thinking for me, just having Benjamin in July, I was so worried that I, my reading life was going to tank after I had him because I just have three young boys. I'm like, oh my, when am I going to have time to read? And it has been hard, but I've been able to connect still with so many other readers and with characters and stories in ways that had I, had I not prioritized reading, I don't think I would have felt that same level of connection. So I'm really thankful for that. I've been so impressed with you having three young boys and continuing to read at the level that you have. I just find that amazing. Oh, it's such a perfect escape for me. I'm home a lot with them, but it is nice when I can just find like those little pockets. I don't get big chunks um, of reading time, but just those little pockets do add up. So encouragement to anybody else walking through a busy time that it does, it does make a difference. It does. And people ask me that a lot in terms of where I fit in my reading. And I think it's the same way. I don't think, okay, I have to have a solid two-hour chunk before I sit down to read. I just bring a book with me everywhere I go. And if I have 10 minutes here, 15 minutes here, it definitely adds up. And you do a lot of audio, which if I did more of, I could fit in more books. But I think that's a great way because you can do that while you're doing lots of other things. Exactly. Audio has saved my life this year. The other thing that I think is just fascinating as I look back on my reading, and this has been something that has been continuing to get more and more pronounced over the last few years. But as I was looking at when my favorite books were from during the year, 
I have found that January through May are when the predominant number of books that I really like are coming out. And then kind of as the rest of the year progresses, I have one here and one there. But so many of my books come out in the early parts of the year, so many of the books that that I really love. And I don't know if it's just that the types of books I like, that's when they're targeted or, or what's happening, but it's really interesting. I felt the same way. I had a lot of early January, February reads that really stuck with me and then kind of hit like a little bit of a mid-year slump. Um, I read a lot of good books, but not a ton of great standouts. And then it picked up again this fall with a few great ones. Half of my books were published in January through April that are on my list, and eight of the 12 were in the first half of the year. Then I had one in July, one in August, one in September, one in October. So I thought that's just kind of different. And I think it's been that way the last couple of years. So it's just an interesting trend. And I can't wait to watch and see what happens for 2023. Yeah, that makes me excited because maybe our best books of next year are just right around the corner. Well, I've already been diving into 2023. And I have read at least six books that I have absolutely loved. And they're all in that window. So I think it's interesting. And I'll watch it as the year progresses. And I had fits getting down to 12. I don't know if you were the same way, but I mean, there were at least five or six more that could have been on my list. And I was just really going back and forth and looking at the books and thinking about them and messing with it. And I finally got to 12, but it was hard. Yeah, I found the same thing to be true. Just so hard to narrow it down. And a lot of my choices were so different. And so kind of comparing them with each other just felt like, oh man, this is just such a different situation. It's so hard to winnow it down to 12, but we've done it. Here we are. Exactly. I'm so excited because you and I are also recording a Patreon episode where we chat about a bunch more books we enjoyed in 2022, and that'll be a good way to make sure some of those are covered. But that list is really long as well. Yes. One of my favorite books that I read this year was a backlist book, so you'll have to tune into Patreon to hear about that one. Mine as well, actually. So, and I loved the book so much, I'm now getting all of the rest of his books. So yes, you'll have to tune in to hear our favorite backlist books. I'm excited to hear what you got. Well, why don't we dive into our top 12 and we're going to do like we did last year. They're not in any order in terms of publication date or order that we liked them other than our first book, but we gave an award to each one or superlative. Okay. I'm going to lead off with my best book of the year. And that is No Land to Light On by Yara Zeeb. And I read No Land to Light On last January, so it's almost been a year since I've read this story, and I just cannot stop thinking about how achingly beautiful it is. I definitely don't think that this book has gotten the attention that it is so worthy of, so I'm just really happy for the opportunity to share it again. So No Land to Light On follows a young couple, Sama and Hadi, who have immigrated from Syria to build their life in Boston. And they've each been in Boston for a few years, so they have these established careers and communities. But then the 2017 Muslim travel ban leaves them separated, and then they're really forced to consider the meaning of home and what that looks like for them. From the opening chapter, I was so deeply invested in their lives. My heart was just in my throat as the story unfolded. It was so riveting to me. The couple was at the mercy of this system that really had no regard for the fact that they had been in the United States for a few years and their refugee status or the arrival of their newborn son who was in the NICU. So this is a quick read, but it does pack a serious emotional punch. Yara's writing is incredibly poetic and it explores deep longing and the lengths that people will go to build a better life for their children and their family. And the way that she highlights the humanity of the Syrian people was so well done. 
Something that was so unique about this book is the way that Yara weaves metaphors about birds and their migration patterns throughout the story and compares that to Sama and Hadi. It was just unique. And I can't, I keep saying beautiful, but there's no really other way to describe it right now. I had the opportunity to co-host an author chat with Yara and she is an immigrant. She is Lebanese and she shared her own voices perspective. During our chat, she mentioned that this novel actually started out as her diary. She was separated from her husband through a different executive order while her twins were in the NICU. And she talked about how her rage was so big and bold. But as she started to write this diary, her rage softened and she was able to turn her anger into No Land to Light on this novel. So I binged this book in two days with a combination of print and audio, and both were fantastic. I can't recommend this book enough. It is No Land to Light on by Yara Zeeb. I remember seeing that one all over Instagram, and definitely it was one that seemed to resonate with a lot of people. Yeah, I I just think hearing from Yara, too, about her experience really amplified my enjoyment of that book as well. It was just an amazing conversation. Okay, Cindy, what is your first book? So this will surprise no one, but my first book is my favorite book of the year, and I also gave it most perfectly plotted, and it's Wrong Place, Wrong Time by Jillian McAllister. I have been raving about this book ever since I read it, I think in late spring, early summer. It is just amazing. It's one of those books that has stayed with me. I think about it all the time, and I have recommended it to literally everyone I know. As the book opens, Jen witnesses her 18-year-old son, Todd, murdering a complete stranger in the middle of the night right in front of their house. Devastated that her son, with whom she is very close, has taken someone's life, Jen cries herself to sleep on the sofa. The following morning, she wakes up, ready to begin understanding why her son committed this crime, but instead finds herself not on the morning after the crime, but the morning before it happened. So as soon as this story began, I was like, okay, where is this going to go? Each night she goes to sleep, and then when she wakes up, she's further back in time. And each day she lands on tells her something about the events that led up to her son's actions as she continues to search for why all of this occurred and more importantly, search for how to stop it from happening. Wrong Place, Wrong Time is an intelligent read that kept me turning the pages through all sorts of twists and turns and is definitely the best thriller that I have read in a long time. I have had such great feedback on it from people when I have recommended it to them. And I also just love that it made me reflect on the various stages of my life as well as that of my children, and also just perspective. As Jen keeps going further back in time, she has a different perspective on the things that are happening because she knows more and she understands and she can notice different things and she isn't so caught up in the minutia of the day-to-day. And I just really loved that. I thought that it was just such an interesting way to view a story. And one of my complaints about thrillers often is that they are pretty routine, standard, kind of the same old thing. And what I just thought made this one such a standout was that she really dives into the characters and the motivations and what's happening. And there are just all these different things happening in the story. And when I interviewed her, she talked about that. She said, I really wanted it to be a story with more depth to it and an understanding of the characters, and to not have all of these unlikable characters that constantly show up in thrillers as well. I cannot recommend this one enough, and that is Wrong Place, Wrong Time by Jillian McAllister. I loved this one just as much as you did, and it was a contender for a top book of the year for me too. 
And like you said, it just had so much depth and heart to it that other thrillers don't have. And I thought the backwards storytelling was masterful and truly unlike anything I've ever read. And also with the themes of motherhood and looking back at different phases of her mothering of her son throughout his years, it just made me consider how I'm raising my boys and ways that I want to be intentional. And I I just ended this book with like chills and tears in my eyes. It just really touched me. So I'm so glad that you loved it too. I agree. I think it really does make you, one, reflect on your own parenting, and two, realize that as long as you're doing the very best that you can, things are going to turn out because she worries the whole time that she's the cause. And I think that's such a common thing for mothers to worry so much about raising their children and what's going to happen with them and what we're doing to them, you know, and all of that. And so it just was kind of a reassurance to me, like, I am doing the very best I can. I love my children and it's going to be okay. And to try to quit worrying about some of the little things sometimes. Yeah, that's exactly it. It just felt like an encouraging hug from one mom to another, just, you know, kind of booing you forward and just saying, like, it's going to be okay. You can do this. So I loved that too. I agree. Well, what's next for you? Okay, the next book for me is The Best Own Voices Story, and this is Honor by Thridi Umrigar. Honor is another own voices story that explores identity, cultural expectations, and love in this really deeply moving way. The story follows Smita, and she is an Indian-American journalist, and Mina, and Mina is a newly widowed mother living in Mumbai. Mina finds herself in the midst of a terrible loss when her husband is murdered by her Hindu brothers because he's a Muslim. There are some really dark scenes in this novel, but what I love most were the characters. So on the surface, their lifestyles really couldn't be more different, but at the end of the day, their hearts shared the same longing for acceptance and deep connection that we all have. And I'm always drawn to stories of sacrifice and loyalty. They just tend to have the most staying power with me, and this was one of them. I haven't read many books set in India, and so I also learned a lot about the various faiths and consequences of interfaith love, which I hadn't considered before. I think that Honor would be an incredible book club selection because it easily lends itself to these thought-provoking conversations. I think readers who enjoyed A Woman is No Man will really enjoy Honor as well. This was a book that was originally a four and a half star read for me when I read it last January, but, and I rarely do this, I bumped it up to a five star because it's been almost a year and I still think about the story nearly a year later. So that was Honor by Thridi Umrigar. Okay, I'm having flashbacks to our first recording for the January through March things and I was laughing because all your books were so dark. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I forgot right. about your dark reading, but those are good. And they're really, you know, the stories that teach you a lot. It's just funny. I know. I was thinking that too. I'm like, oh, here I go, Debbie Downer again. But I do think the the stories with heavier themes are the ones that stick with me. And I think if readers are in the right headspace, that these could really be powerful reads for people. Absolutely. They're very important reads. I'm definitely not downplaying that. I'm just laughing because I was thinking back to that time. <laughs> Yeah, I got some lighter ones in here too. Don't worry. (laughs) So my next one is a most underrated gem, and it's The White Girl by Toni Birch. I've been singing the praises of this book all year. I just thought it was such a fantastic story, much like what you're describing with Honor. 
that it took me to another place and really immersed me in that culture and things that I had not thought about before. So this one is set in 1960s Australia in the town of Dean, a fictional town representative of every small town in Australia. Odette Brown and her fair-skinned granddaughter Sissy live in the aboriginal section of the town, Quarry Town, and are subject to the restrictions placed on them by the welfare authorities. When a new policeman arrives, Odette realizes that Sissy is in danger of being taken from her, with absolutely no recourse on Odette's part, because during this time period, aboriginal people couldn't be Australian citizens, nor could they even make basic decisions for themselves, such as when and where to travel or even what job they would hold. Birch vividly describes what it was like to live as an aboriginal person then and the countless hardships that they endured, while also weaving in a beautiful tale of family and the lengths that people will go to in order to protect each other. I loved Odette, and her strength and perseverance against all odds will stay with me for a very long time. I interviewed Tony, and we discussed how he balanced including the injustices committed against the Aboriginal people with the desire to not make the story so grim that people wouldn't want to read it. And I felt that he really accomplished that. He struck a really good balance. And I truly love this story. I think about it all the time and Odette and Sissy together and what Odette did for Sissy and just those strong female characters, which he so vividly portrayed. And that is The White Girl by Tony Birch. I'm so glad you brought this back up because I remember hearing about it the first time around and thinking, ooh, yes, I want to add this to my list. And um, I haven't gotten to it yet. So maybe in December, um, this will be one that I pick up. And it's a pretty quick read. It's not very long. That's good. That's what I'm here for. Exactly. Well, what's on your list next? Okay, so I'm continuing down my path of darkness here with the best character study, and that is Notes on an Execution by Dania Kukovka. This is an intimate character study of Ansel Packard, and he is a serial killer on death row. The story also focuses on three women who've played a prominent role in his life, and it's his mother, his ex-sister-in-law, and then the detective who put him behind bars. So I'm not really sure what I was expecting going into this book about a serial killer, but this really was so different than what I was expecting, and I think that's why I enjoyed it so much. The story is told through alternating perspectives and an hour-by-hour countdown to Ansel's execution. As the story unfolds, we get to see Ansel's childhood trauma that really served as the catalyst for his mental health issues, which ultimately landed him on death row. The author did a fantastic job of getting readers to have empathy for a man who had committed these truly horrific crimes. When we see him as a young boy and all the hardships that he's endured, it's easy to see his humanity and what led up to him making these really awful choices. The writing is absolutely riveting, and the structure of the story with the hour-by-hour countdown was, was so unique. I thought the questions that it raised about morality and our choices and the inherent goodness or evil of human nature were really interesting. This was also fantastic on audio. And despite the character driven pacing, I still just like wanted to fold more laundry (laughs) and have more time to listen because it was just so compelling. That was Notes on an Execution by Dania Kukovka. That's another one that was all over Instagram. And it just sounds too dark for me, but people have just raved about it. Yeah. Yep. I can see that. It wouldn't be for everybody, but I thought it was just so enlightening. So I think after those three, things start to lighten up for me a little bit here. So hang with me. (laughs) Oh, it's no problem. It's just one of those things that sometimes I'm a wimp and then I can't sleep. But it did sound like it was a compelling read. Definitely. 
Okay, what do you got next? My next one is Most Unsettling, and it's Our Missing Hearts by Celeste Ng. This was one of those books that just sounded good to me from the very second that I read about it, and it really worked for me. In a near-future world, 12-year-old Bird Gardner lives in an apartment on the Harvard University campus with his father, a former linguist who now shelves books at the university's library. For over 10 years, the United States has been ruled by laws created to maintain an American way of life in light of years of violence and economic upheaval. Those who oppose these laws have their children removed from them and their livelihoods taken away. Moreover, libraries have removed books deemed unpatriotic, including a book of poems written by Byrd's own mother, Margaret, that are linked to a growing resistance movement. While she left when he was nine, and Byrd has learned to disavow her, when he receives a special drawing he believes is from her, he sets out on a long journey to find her. This heartbreaking and ultimately hopeful book shines a light on injustice and racism and demonstrates how art and quiet resistance can bring about change. This stunning story touched my heart and I will not soon forget it. I have been so pleased to see this book everywhere since it came out. Reese never picks the same author twice and she made an exception for Celeste Ng when she picked this book. With hate speech on the rise and people trying to undermine democracy right and left, I believe this is an incredibly important read and a cautionary tale. My own book club has picked it to read early next year, and I can't wait to see what everybody else has to say about it. But I just thought it was such a powerful and compelling read. And that is Our Missing Hearts by Celeste Ng. That sounds so good to me. I haven't read this one yet. It just has eluded me this fall, but I plan to. I also wanted to mention that Reese's picks have been some really good ones this year. I've been really happy with a lot of her selections. Yes, I definitely think she has gotten better this year than she was last year. Agreed. Agreed. So what's next on the list for you, Kelly? I have the best genre mashup, and that is Woman on Fire by Lisa Barr. I think that a genre mashup is so fun. I love when you can't quite categorize a book and you're like, what is this? Is it a thriller? Is it historical fiction? Is it a romance? And I think that just makes for a really fun reading experience. And so Woman on Fire certainly delivers on that count. There is a layered historical mystery. The ending was kind of this thriller-esque um, situation. And then, of course, a romance. I just think that there's something here to love for everybody. So Woman on Fire follows young journalist Jules Roth as she finds herself in the midst of an international art scandal. And she is searching for a stolen Nazi-era painting. Ernst Engel's infamous Woman on Fire painting resurfaces after it's been missing for decades. And so many people are trying to lay stake to its claim. A rich cast of characters race to track down this highly sought-after painting. I think that Lisa Barr has written a gripping story that is simply unputdownable. I was so invested in the fate of the painting and the livelihood of all of these characters. I read it this summer and just flew through it. It just was this globe-trotting novel that was such a quick read. The story was really cinematic and it unfolded like a movie in my mind. And I wasn't surprised to learn that Woman on Fire is heading to the big screen and will be starring Sharon Stone. I also had the opportunity to co-host an author chat with Lisa. And she mentioned that Jules, the protagonist, reflects so much of who she was at the beginning of her own journalism career, just like her earnestness and drive to do anything to uncover the story and the truth. And I just thought that was so interesting. That was Woman on Fire by Lisa Barr. I knew this would be on your list, and it's on my list as well. I have it as most compulsively readable. Oh, yep. That's perfect title for it. 
She did so much research, and I just thought all of the Nazi-era looting stories that she included and the things that happened were absolutely horrifying. But it was also interesting to learn some of that and just kind of know that history. I was pleased to see that Sharon Stone was not only going to be starring in it, but is also the one that optioned it and will be helping produce it. So I think it will be so well done. It definitely will translate to the screen beautifully. Yeah. Lisa mentioned that Sharon was actually an early reader of this book and that she had kind of sent it to her just blindly and Sharon read it and loved it. And so I think that was such a fun connection of Sharon's just been with the story since it began. I thought that was so cool, too, that she just DM'd her and said, I'd love for you to read this book. She sent it to Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone loved it. And now it's being translated to the screen. You can't get a better story than that. Exactly. Well, what book is next for you, Cindy? Okay. You were talking earlier about how you had shifted your rating from a 4.5 to a 5. So I have a book on the list that I didn't even talk about when we did the window of time that it came out in. But it's one of those that I keep thinking about, and I've done a bunch of book talks lately. One of the things that I do is go and speak to groups and do book recommendations to them, and I had six in the last three weeks. And this was one of the books that I was talking about regularly, and I've already had a lot of feedback on it. So even though I didn't cover it when we met before, it's now in my top 12. And that is Noteworthy Nonfiction, and it's Bad City, Peril and Power in the City of Angels by Paul Pringle. Bad City is a riveting and horrifying look at the way the University of Southern California's administration prioritized the school's reputation over its students and the surrounding community. In 2016, an L.A. Times reporter received a tip about a woman who overdosed at a local hotel and the role that Dr. Carmen Puliafito, the dean of USC's Keck School of Medicine, played in the overdose. Not aware yet of the can of worms that he would ultimately open, Paul Pringle began looking into the event. By the time he was finished several years later, he had exposed corruption at the highest levels of both USC and the LA Times. The dean not only did meth and other drugs regularly himself, and he was so sure he wouldn't be punished, he videoed and photographed himself doing so, but he also befriended women in their 20s and provided them with drugs and money. Repeated complaints to USC's provost, C.L. Max Nikias, yielded not even one response except to the editor of the LA Times, who then scolded the reporters. Subsequently, Paul and his group learned about a male gynecologist who worked at the student clinic and had been molesting students for decades without punishment. The reporters then proved that the administration was aware of this behavior as well. After the stories ran, the group ended up winning a Pulitzer Prize for bringing the second story to light. There were so many times as I was reading this book that I was just sick to my stomach at what USC managed to cover up and why they decided to do so. It's truly despicable. While it is a tough read at times, Bad City vividly demonstrates the continued importance of investigative journalism at a time when everyone is so fed up with the news and feeling like every network is partial in some way or another. So it just sort of renewed my faith in the process and the fact that investigative journalism can be incredibly important. And this is Bad City, Peril and Power in the City of Angels by Paul Pringle. Wow. I am so surprised by that book because I have, first of all, never heard of it. And like you said, it kind of missed the boat on our first chats. And so it's fun to see over the course of the year how some of these titles really stick with us. And like you said, I think that this is a time when everybody in our country is looking for truth and appreciates unbiased journalism. And I think this this is a really important book. So I'm glad you shared that. Well, and it's such an interesting story on the book because 
they embargoed it up until three weeks before it came out. It's a Celadon book. And they did not send out galleys. They didn't do anything because they didn't want the book to be shut down. They didn't want a threat of a lawsuit or anything like that. So I got my copy about three weeks before it published. And then I was able to read it before it came out so I could post about it on Pub Day. But it was interesting because there wasn't a lot of pre-pub chatter. Oh, that is so interesting. I think that's really smart that they did it that way. But very fascinating. And that's probably why I you know, haven't heard much about it is because it didn't get that pre-publication buzz like other books do. I think that's right, but it's definitely worth the read. So what's up next for you? Okay, I have Best New Release from a Beloved Author, and this is Carrie Soto is Back by Taylor Jenkins Reid. So there's no doubt that really every book with Taylor's name on it is going to be a big deal. I really enjoy her books, but I, I don't think I would consider myself fanatical in the same way that other readers do about her stories, but this was a five-star read for me, and I think it might be my favorite of her books, although Daisy Jones is hard to beat on audio. So the story follows Carrie Soto, and she was dominating the women's tennis scene from the late 70s to the early 90s, and she steps away from the game to go out on top. Six years later, she is no longer in her prime, but she comes out of retirement and back into the limelight to defend her world records at the age of 37. I don't think you need to have an undying love for tennis to enjoy this story, but I do think that having kind of this heart of a competitor or some sports background might help you appreciate it or boost your investment in Carrie's journey. So I loved her character arc. She starts out so callous towards the media and her opponents and even to those closest to her. She has a way of kind of pushing people or keeping them at an arm's length. And I just couldn't help but root for her success on and off the court. I just loved how she opens herself up to new experiences, even after she felt like she had it all. The story really shines with this tender relationship between Carrie and her father, which I don't see that often in fiction, like the father-daughter relationship. And it reminded me of the relationship that I have with my own dad. When I was growing up, I was really into basketball and in high school and college, and he was just always my biggest cheerleader and coach um, in formal and informal ways. And so it was so fun just to see that reflected on the page. That was Carrie Soto is Back by Taylor Jenkins Reid. That is one of the titles that just narrowly missed being in my top 12. I was going back and forth and back and forth. And then we talked a little bit and I knew it was on yours. And I thought, okay, I can talk a bit about it when you mention it. I just thought it was a fabulous read. Daisy Jones has always been my favorite of hers. And I'm the same way you are. Like, I'm not a fanatic, but I like some of her books better than I like some of them. And, you know, I always read them just to see what they're about. And Carrie Soto ended up being tied with Daisy Jones. I just thought it was so well done. And I loved her character arc as well. You start out thinking, what is up with this woman? But after you get to know her better and understand her background and see how she progresses and understands herself better and some of the choices she's made, you're just totally rooting for her. Yeah, I think she's just so distinctive and she's not like other characters that I had read about. So I really appreciated just that unique perspective that Taylor Jenkins Reid brought to Carrie's character. I was actually talking to one of my friends at book club last night and she was telling a friend that she had read Carrie Soto and she didn't realize that it was a fictional story. She's like, oh yeah, I'm reading about this book about Carrie Soto, like that you know, big tennis girl. And the person was like, huh? I've never heard of her. She's like, yeah, she's like a pretty big deal. <laughs> so it, it just, 
is a testament to how well the story is written that you believe it's real. Okay, that's absolutely hilarious. But it makes sense because she tells her story and then interspersed with it are all those blogs and radio programs and news programs. So I could see where you might think it actually was a true story. Yep, I can see that too. So it was a great one. I hope that um, readers will give it a chance. The funniest part to me about that book is that it really takes place in the mid-1990s to late-1990s, right? So Goodreads changed up the way they did their Choice Awards this year. In prior years, they've taken nominations, and then that makes the list. They didn't do that. They just slotted in certain books in each category, and they put that in historical fiction. And I'm like, okay, it's been like 25 years. I don't think that can be historical fiction. So it's just kind of odd, and I guess there's been a lot of backlash. Like People have been like, I'm sorry, but that's not historical fiction. I know. I saw that, too. And I the last year, I saw that Malibu Rising, which is set in the 80s, was considered historical fiction as well. And I guess I can see that more than the 90s. But I'm like, oh, OK, I guess we're going with it. <laughs> so I wanted to write to the Goodreads people and be like, somebody needs to redo the way you all define historical fiction. Because I think of it as contemporary fiction. You know, I'm like, that is not old enough to be historical fiction yet, people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> OK, what do you have next? Mine is Best Book Based on a True Story, and it's Take My Hand by Dolan Perkins Valdez. This book is just beautiful, inside and out. It's one of those covers that just grabbed me from the very beginning. I wanted to read it before I even knew what it was about because the cover is so stunning. And then once I read it, I thought, okay, it's the perfect package. In this dual timeline historical fiction story, Sybil Townsend hopes to make a difference in her community by working as a nurse at the Montgomery Family Planning Clinic a birth control clinic in 1970s Alabama, which serves those desperately in need of care. But when one of her jobs involves putting 11 and 13-year-old girls on birth control, when neither girl has even kissed a boy, Sybil is compelled to fight this injustice. Years later, Dr. Townsend is ready to retire, but these stories from her past refuse to stay hidden when she finds herself explaining to her daughter what happened and why. Dolan did a ton of research, and it really shows. She seamlessly weaves in so much history and detail, and that really adds to the story. This incredibly sad but important book highlights what happens when those in charge think they know what is best and take matters into their own hands. With the recent focus on reproductive rights, this is a particularly relevant and compelling story. It's a really hard read because a lot of these things happened and happened well past the 70s, particularly in the South. But I think it is also important for people to understand that these things happened. And as we continue to fight for reproductive rights, to understand some of the history of what has unfolded in this country. I listened to this one, which I don't do very often at all for fiction, and I thought the audiobook was stellar. And that is Take My Hand by Dolan Perkins Valdez. I really enjoyed this one, too. And again, it was a narrow miss for my top reads. And I'm so glad that you gave it a try on audio because I thought the audiobook was so well done. And the author's note at the end of this book was fantastic. Yes, I rarely do fiction on audiobook. I mean, like I could probably say two books this entire year, but I just went ahead and listened to this one and it was really, really good. Good. I'm glad you gave it a shot. What's up for you? The smallest book with the biggest punch award goes to Last Summer on State Street by Toya Wolf. This is an own voices debut and another slim book that packs a big punch. Last Summer on State Street is a coming-of-age story that follows Fifi Stevens in the summer of 1999, and the high-rise building that she calls home is slated to be demolished by the Chicago Housing Authority. The story alternates between Fifi's thriving present-day adulthood 
and her childhood recollections. And because of this, the story has a maturity to it that only time and hindsight wisdom can bring. Fifi reckons with the heartbreaking realities and friendships lost during one formative summer in her adolescence. This story is a window into life in the Chicago projects, and it's based on the housing project that the author grew up in. And I just think it gives this story an authenticity and rawness that really resonated with me. I loved the themes of forgiveness and family bonds and the importance of home. I flew through this short but moving story with a combination of print and audio, and I thought the narration by Shayna Small was fantastic. I haven't listened to anything else by her, but she did a really great job. I also had the opportunity to interview Toya, and she really emphasized the humanity of the people living in these buildings. And she acknowledged the higher crime rates, but also really wanted readers to be aware of the lack of funding and ultimately like true abandonment of the Chicago Housing Authority that really allowed the buildings to slip into disrepair and become completely run down. And it was interesting to hear Toya's perspective on her own experiences. So I thought it was the perfect summer read that had depth and heart. And that was The Last Summer on State Street by Toya Wolf. I love that one as well. It's another one that just narrowly missed my top 12. And you connected me with her and I got to interview her as well for the podcast. I went to college in Chicago and my senior thesis was actually on the housing projects in Chicago. There were two large ones. She was in the Robert Taylor Homes, which were on the south side. And the one I focused on was Cabrini Green, which was on the west side. But it's just such a terrible story. They built these huge complexes, which were just beautiful initially, and then provided no funding to them. So over the years, they just completely fell apart. And I thought she did such a great job of depicting that. You know, it was a wonderful coming-of-age story, and I loved her characters. And the way she phrased it when I interviewed her was, it's like a snippet of Chicago's history is what she's providing. And I agree completely. It's a window in time when these buildings were going away on the kind of sundowning of them versus when they were first built, and the difference in how her grandmother viewed them and how she and her family viewed them and all of it. I just thought it was so well done. Yeah, I learned so much about the city of Chicago and a few readers who I had recommended this to live in Chicago as well. And they thought the book was fascinating just because they had watched this unfold in their city. So I would highly recommend this one. I walked by them over and over again when we would go to White Sox games because you would get off the L and there'd be this huge platform, long, long walkway that would then walk you to the ballpark. So I vividly remember them. And it's just kind of interesting to now realize there's nothing there. They just pulled them down and it's just empty fields. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, what do you have next on your list, Cindy? Next is another one of my very favorites of the year and it's best recommendation from a friend. And it was Elizabeth Barnhill who recommended this one and it is Love and Saffron by Kim Fay. As I just mentioned, I love this book so much. It's another one that I have just been passing out to people right and left. Written in epistolary format and set in the 1960s, this beautiful book tracks the friendship between two women, Imogen and Joan, as they get to know each other through letters. I'm a huge fan of that format. It's really one of my favorite ways to read books. I feel like so much can unfold through the thoughts of people and the way they describe what's happening to them, and I just really enjoy that format. Imogene Fortier is a longtime columnist for a magazine and lives on an island near Seattle. Joan, who is younger, is a new food columnist in Los Angeles. When Joan writes Imogen a fan letter and encloses a recipe and some saffron, the women begin a correspondence that develops into a wonderful relationship. 
incorporating the history of the era, food, and personal tidbits, the women bond and become close friends as they correspond about their lives. Books with intergenerational relationships always make me so happy, and this one really hits home and explains why those types of relationships are important. Kelly, you and I have chatted about this book a couple of times and how it a little bit mimics our friendship. And so I so enjoy that, and it now always makes me think of you when I see it. This novel is filled to the brim with humor and heart and is a joy from start to finish. And that is Love and Saffron by Kim Fay. Yes, the whole time I was, I listened to this one, the whole time I was just thinking like, oh, this reminds me of my sweet friend, Cindy, and just how different people from across the country and different seasons of life can still just connect over certain things. And I I loved that. Well, I love it too, because I think we have such different perspectives because we're in totally different seasons of our lives. Your kids are younger, mine are older, but it's really nice to kind of have that reminder of different things. And I just really, really enjoy our friendship. And now I will always connect it with this book. Yes, I have it sitting on my shelf too. And it's purple and it always stands out to me and it just warms my heart. (laughs) Yay. Well, what's next for you? Okay, I have the best book to cozy up with. And that is A Quiet Life by Ethan Joella. This story feels like sitting down with a close friend and sharing your deepest heartaches and triumphs. A Quiet Life follows three people, each grieving a deep loss. So Chuck has recently lost his wife, and he can't fathom taking their annual trip to Hilton Head without her. Ella is a mother desperate to find her young, missing daughter. And Kristen is looking to put the pieces of her life back together after her father's tragic and unexpected death. The magic of this story is how the lives of these characters intersect. Ethan Joella doesn't offer readers platitudes or these hollow promises of a quick fix for loss. Instead, he highlights the beauty that can be found when we choose to let others into our mess. His words paint such a stunning picture of how we truly need one another. I think that there are these heavy themes, but ultimately I was left feeling hopeful about humanity. And I was just chatting with a group of readers about this book and somebody asked, you know, I'm just going through a loss right now. Do you think I should wait to pick up this book or do you think I should just kind of go go for it? And I do think it depends if you are in a season of grief and you're looking for a complete escape. I, I would maybe hang on to this one for another time. But if you're feeling like you might want to lean into that a little bit, a few other readers mentioned that they found kind of solace or solidarity with some of these characters and it felt like a hug to them. So just keep that in mind with this book. I am thrilled to be co-hosting a book club and author chat with Ethan on January 9th. So feel free to send me a message on Instagram uh, if you'd like to join. He is so engaged in the reading community and he told me that one of his most favorite things about his job is interacting with readers. So I think he's going to be so much fun to talk with. That was A Quiet Life by Ethan Joella. Well, that is one that I am in the chat that you were talking about as well, where people were talking about whether it was the right time or wrong time to read it if they had just experienced loss. And I thought it was fascinating to see kind of where everybody came down on that. I have waited to read that just because of the loss of my parents in the last year, but I am beginning to feel a little better and I'm definitely signed up for your chat and I'm planning to participate. So I'm going to get it read over the holidays, and I'm really looking forward to it because people rave about his books. I just knew I needed a little bit of time. Yeah, I think that makes sense just to have a little bit of space from that. But I will be so curious to see um, what you think of it. I'm sure I'll love it. I don't think I've seen a single bad review for that book. No, none. 
none. (laughs) And that never happens. (laughs) Exactly. Well, what is next for you, Cindy? So my next one is most likely to reread, and it's How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water by Angie Cruz. Carl Romero is now one of my favorite fictional characters. Certainly she is flawed, but she is so darn hilarious, and she experiences tremendous growth in the book. I just adore her. I love creative formats, and that's one of the things that I really liked about this book, as well as the setting. I'm a huge fan of Lin-Manuel Miranda's first musical, In the Heights, which is set in Washington Heights, and I kept singing all of those songs in my head as I read this one because it is also set in Washington Heights. Cara thought she would work at the factory of Little Lamps for the rest of her life, but when in her mid-50s, she loses her job in the Great Recession, she is forced back into the job market for the first time in decades, set up with a job counselor. Kara instead begins to narrate the story of her life. Over the course of 12 sessions, Kara recounts her tempestuous love affairs, her biting and loving relationships with her neighbor Lulu and her sister Angela, her struggles with debt, gentrification and loss, and eventually what really happened between her and her estranged son, Fernando. As Kara confronts her darkest secrets and regrets, we see a woman buffeted by life but still full of fight. Interspersed with the 12 sessions are a series of forms that Kara has to fill out. I poured over her answers to these forms and laughed out loud at both her answers and her meetings with the job counselor. Instead of treating it like an interview and waiting for the woman to ask her questions, she literally sits down like she's in therapy and just starts unloading. And every time the job counselor tries to keep her on track, Cara's like, yeah, 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 but let me first finish telling you all of these stories. So I just thought it was so well done. Angie Cruz also deals with these weightier issues such as gentrification, domestic abuse, and horrible familial relationships by using humor, which I think is such a great way to address hard topics because you still get through the topics and you think about them and you're addressing them, but you're also laughing. I just think this is truly a gem of a book, and that is How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water by Angie Cruz. I loved this one so much too. It's actually on my list as the most memorable protagonist because like you said, Cara Romero will just make this home in your heart. She is so zany and she has this tender heart and she's deeply loyal to those she loves and she's a complete oversharer. (laughs) She just makes you laugh and I wish I knew her in real life because she is just a hoot. So that made my top 12 as well. And I also think if you're on the fence about trying an audiobook, like maybe you've never tried one before, you don't think they're your thing with doing fiction on audio, this would be a good one to start with because it is a slim book, but there are so many audiobook elements that make this really incredible. Like I think it's, it is the best audiobook that I've listened to this year and I've listened to a lot of them, but they have sound effects like there is footsteps when you hear somebody coming and going and there's keyboard typing sounds when she's filling out various job applications. And of course, when she's in these counseling sessions, she's swallowing a glass of water. And so you kind of hear the water. It sounds it sounds like it would be distracting, but it just really enhanced the reading experience so much. So I loved it. Well, that's why I have it as my most likely to reread because you had raved about it. So I downloaded from Libro the audiobook, and I do plan to listen to it because you were saying how good it was. And this is another one that I was recommending at those talks that I did recently. And every single time I say, if you're an audiobook fan, you need to listen to this one because my friend tells me it is literally one of the best audiobooks she has listened to. So that's why it's on my list for that. And I thought when I travel around the holidays on the plane, I'm going to listen to it. That will be perfect. It is a delight. Good. I can't wait. Well, what's up for you? 
My next book is The Most Elusive Five-Star Read, and it is Little Prisons by Elona Bannister. So absolutely nobody explores the rawness and vulnerability of motherhood like Elona Bannister. And absolutely nobody. After loving her debut, When I Ran Away, I knew I had to get my hands on her latest Little Prisons, but that proved to be harder than expected. So I saw on Goodreads that the book came out in June, and there were reviews for it, but then I was looking in my library and on NetGalley or just even on Amazon. Amazon has everything, and it wasn't there. So I was just confused. I messaged Alona on Instagram and just said, you know, I've been really looking forward to your book, but I can't find it. Is it available in the U.S.? And she said, unfortunately, it's not right now. It wasn't picked up by any U.S. publishers, and it was only available in the U.K., but she graciously sent me a copy. So that was so sweet of her. I was a little hesitant to pick it up because I was like, well, why hadn't any of the U.S. publishers taken it? But I ended up absolutely loving it and it landed itself in my top 12. So the story follows four women residing in an apartment building who each find themselves imprisoned by various captors, seen and unseen. One woman suffers from severe postpartum anxiety. One woman is a modern day slave. Another is in an emotionally abusive marriage, and another is limited by dogmatic religious practices. The story is told from multiple points of view, and it is brilliantly structured. The story highlights resilience in women and the importance of community connection, which I've mentioned is kind of one of my themes for the year. I loved the way that the lives of the women ultimately intersected and how they banded together. And it reminded me that we truly never know what prisons people are living with and how much a simple act of kindness or sacrifice can really change the outcome. The story follows the women before and during the COVID-19 lockdown. And I think that was kind of part of the reason why U.S. publishers were hesitant to bring this to the States because they were thinking, well, people don't want to read about COVID. And I, I can see that perspective. But COVID plays a very secondary role here. The story is really about women. And I read this book with about 30 other people, and we all felt the same way. We loved it. It didn't bother us that COVID-19 was mentioned because, again, it wasn't the focus. This story has a lot of trigger warnings. So if you have concerns, feel free to message me with specific questions. But overall, this was a beautiful read. I had the opportunity to co-host an author chat with Ilona, and she was such a delight. She has a background as an immigration lawyer and has also been really transparent with her own mental health journey. So she handles sensitive topics with great care. And while there are heavy themes in the story, it is definitely not devoid of hope. It was beautifully written. The ending was so uniquely done. I've never seen an ending quite like this. And I don't want to go into detail because I just want you to discover it for yourself, but it worked so well. Both of Alona's books have been five-star reads for me. She's two for two. And the next book that she's working on sounds incredible as well. I just really can't wait to see what she does next. Little Prisons is available for purchase through Book Depository or Blackwell's Books, which is a UK bookseller, but you can get it through Book Depository for 16 bucks and free shipping. So I'd recommend giving it a try. That was Little Prisons by Alona Bannister. I was not familiar with her at all till you were posting about it and having the author chat. I just don't know her. 
Yeah, she had one book last year that was published by Doubleday, When I Ran Away. And it was one of my favorite audiobooks and books in general of last year. So she's definitely one to watch. Good. Well, it's always fun to learn about new authors. Exactly, exactly. Well, what do you have next for us, Cindy? My next one is Historical Fiction Standout, and it's Bloomsbury Girls by Natalie Jenner. I loved her first book, The Jane Austen Society, and so I was so excited. She had a second book coming out, and it definitely did not disappoint. She has now proved herself to be an autobi author for me because I just love both of her books. Bloomsbury Books is an old-fashioned, new and rare bookstore that has persisted and resisted change for a 100 years, run by men and guided by the general manager's unbreakable 51 rules. But in 1950, the world is changing, especially the world of books and publishing. And at Bloomsbury Books, the three women in the shop, Vivian, Grace, and Evie, from the Jane Austen Society, have plans of their own that unfold as the story progresses. As they interact with various literary figures of the time, Daphne du Maurier, Ellen Doubleday, Sonia Blair, widow of George Orwell, Samuel Beckett, Peggy Guggenheim, and others, these three women with their complex web of relationships, goals, and dreams are all working to plot out a future that is richer and more rewarding than anything society will allow. I am a huge fan of books with literary settings, and this one met all of my expectations. The book held my attention from beginning to end, and I was really sad when it was over. I truly loved everything about it, from the setting to the characters to the book's resolution. One of my favorite aspects of the book was the famous literary characters and their roles in the story. I love learning more about Daphne du Maurier and Ellen Doubleday. It is the perfect novel for book lovers, and I can't wait for Natalie's next book, which unfortunately does not come out until 2024. And that is Bloomsbury Girls by Natalie Jenner. That sounds like such a sweet read. I love books about books and uh, literary settings. And so I think that sounds like a really like cozy winter read. Maybe I'll pick up in January. Yes, I just love those literary settings and learning about, as I've mentioned a couple of times, you know, some of these characters from the past and the roles they played and the literary world and publishing and all of it. It was just such a wonderful book. You finish it and you're just so happy. Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. What's next for you? Taking a hard left turn here, I have Best Book Written by a Minor, and this is Nightcrawling by Layla Motley. Nightcrawling is a stunning read on so many levels. This is based on a true story of a police sex scandal within the Oakland Police Department. And it's a coming-of-age story that follows high school dropout Kiara as her young life unfolds in raw and challenging ways. She is left to care for a young neighbor boy and finds herself in circumstances that she never imagined just to stay afloat. I found my breath catching on Layla's lyrical writing and just the way that she describes really desolate situations was so profound. Layla Motley was named the Youth Poet Laureate of Oakland, and her talents really, really shine in her debut. I find it incredible that she was only 17 years old when she wrote this story. The story explores privilege, consent, and the choices people make when their backs are up against the wall. This is a dark yet illuminating book. It's heartbreaking and hopeful, and I encourage you to pick it up when you are in the right headspace. That was Nightcrawling by Layla Motley. That book has had so much great press. I cannot believe that she was 17 years old. It just still blows my mind. The audio was really well done also, and I think that you you can't go wrong either way. Yes, it is kind of crazy to think she was so young. Mm-hmm, definitely. What book do you have next? Okay, my next is most likely to recommend to a friend, 
and it's The Unsinkable Greta James by Jennifer E. Smith. I love books about musicians, and adding in the setting of an Alaskan cruise made this a must-read for me. Following a public breakdown brought on by the sudden death of her mother, indie musician Greta James agrees to accompany her father on a cruise to Alaska. They have always had a tense relationship, and while she was alive, Greta's mother, her biggest fan, had helped Greta and her father Conrad communicate with each other. With her gone, the pair struggles to bridge the divide between them, especially in the face of their shared grief. Both hope the cruise to Alaska will help them learn to understand each other. In addition to trying to repair her relationship with her father, Greta is working on her sophomore album, dealing with fans on the cruise ship, reevaluating her own current relationship, and trying to recover from her public meltdown. I really felt for Greta as she tried to work through her grief about her mother's death while also trying to repair her relationship with her father and come to terms with her own career issues. This beautiful novel is a story about repairing relationships, finding your joy, and living life to the fullest. And the ending is just spectacular. I highly, highly recommend this one. And it is The Unseekable Greta James by Jennifer E. Smith. This was one of my favorite reads for the summer, too. I agree that you can recommend it to almost everyone. And I loved the Alaskan setting and the characters. It was a great one. It definitely was. What's up for you? My next book is Most Likely to Make You Contemplate Life. And that is Signal Fires by Danny Shapiro. I just had this gut feeling about this one. After seeing rave reviews for Signal Fires from many readers that my taste really aligns with, I knew that it could be a contender to make this final list, so I was really determined to squeeze it in. And my gut was right. It ended up in my top 12, and so I'm very glad that I prioritized it. This is a quiet novel about two families living on the same street and how their lives come together in heartbreaking and beautiful ways. I don't want to say too much because I think it's best to go in blind. It doesn't sound like much, but oh my goodness, this one just keeps making me consider life and think about things in a new way. And I think it'll be one that I am thinking about for a long time. The story spans many years, but the changing timelines felt really seamless. The characters are incredibly nuanced, like their flaws are on full display, but you can really empathize with each of them. Even though this was a character-driven story, the plot was really thoughtfully layered, and the more this one sits with me, the more I realize how much I really enjoyed it. What I love most about the book were the unexpected friendships that came about and how each character's slice of life crossed paths with the others. And you'll notice that's also a theme for my reading this year, just kind of strangers becoming friends or interacting. I also appreciated the neurodiverse representation. There's a little boy who is neurodiverse in the story, and he is just so, so sweet. And it just highlighted the strength of people that are maybe on the autism spectrum or neurodiverse that might be undervalued by society. Danny Shapiro, the author, narrates the audiobook herself, and in all honesty, it really wasn't my favorite. I thought the story was hard to follow on audio, and her voice just wasn't as strong as a true fiction audiobook narrator, who are also often actors, um, would be. She has memoirs that she has previously narrated. I haven't read them, but I, I will now. But this one in fiction just didn't really do it for me. The words hit me differently coming off of the actual physical page, and I was blown away by that. And so I was so glad to have the physical copy in front of me. 
Danny Shapiro's writing is sparse but powerful, and it just made me contemplate life from this bird's eye or long game perspective and consider how my interactions with acquaintances could alter the trajectory of our lives. And that was Signal Fires by Danny Shapiro. I started that one, and then I got pulled away with something else, and I actually was really enjoying it, and I just haven't gotten back to it. So I didn't DNF it. It's just one of those that sort of got paused, and you're making me think I definitely need to get back to it over the holidays. I think it would be one that you would enjoy, especially because it is a pretty quick read, and it just makes you think about family and childhood and aging, and I I really, I really enjoyed it. Okay, good. I will definitely make sure I get back to it. Okay, so you have two more reads to chat about. So go ahead and tell me about your last two. The first is A Book I Wish Everyone Would Read. That is I Must Betray You by Ruta Sepetis. While this book is classified as YA, I think it really reads more like an adult book. All year, I have been recommending this one to everyone I know, which seems to be a theme, as I've said on a number of these, but that's why they're on this list. And in light of the ongoing invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the January 6th Capitol attack here in the U.S., This book's premise is even more relevant. This historical thriller is set during the time period leading up to Romania's 1989 revolution and the ousting of its charismatic but brutal leader, Nicolae Ceausescu. Insulated and living in constant fear, Romanians must survive under the oppressive regime that governs their country. There is little food, the electricity is randomly turned off and on, no outside media is allowed, and everyone worries about who they can trust and who they cannot. Even family members are suspect. Sepetis vividly depicts life there during this time period, a period many will be unfamiliar with, and how one man managed to fool the world for far too long. I have definitely not stopped thinking about this book since I finished it. It is truly stunning. Just the idea that you would be living in your own home and have to worry about what you said and to whom, and whether it could be bugged or whether your sister would turn on you or your father would turn on you, it's just so inconceivable to me. I think the focus on how awful it is to live under such an oppressive regime is a good reminder to us about how lucky we are that we live in a country that is a democracy and how important it is to preserve that. And that is I Must Betray You by Ruta Sepetis. I decided to read this one after you mentioned that you really liked it in one of our previous chats. And I really liked it. I typically shy away from YA books because sometimes they just they just grate on me. I'm not sure why. But this did not read like YA at all. Like the characters were that, you know, kind of younger age. But I thought the story was so fascinating. And like you mentioned, just really timely with everything that is going on with that in that part of the world right now. So I would recommend this to even readers like me who aren't typically drawn to YA stories. Well, I think it's kind of a fascinating discussion because she has normally been a YA author. So I think a lot of her books get classified that way. But you think about Last Summer on State Street, which is about people that are even younger, 12-year-olds, and that's an adult book. So that's why I kind of feel like this one really isn't YA. I mean, it tells a story about some kids, teenagers into college, but also their family members and everything that's happening there. So it's just kind of curious to me how some of these books get classified one way and some another. Yeah, I think that's interesting, too. Well, go ahead and tell me about your last book. Okay, my last one is Best for Feeling All the Feels. And it's Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting by Claire Pooley. I am a huge fan of found family stories, and this is one of the best ones that I have read in a while. It also fits the bill for a great intergenerational relationship story as well. 
There are clearly certain themes that resonate with me as we talked earlier, and those are both ones that have been really hitting the mark for me. Magazine columnist Iona Iverson rides the train to and from work every day in London, seeing the same people to whom she has privately given nicknames, such as Mr. Too Good to Be True and Smart but Sexist Manspreader. None of the commuters ever speak to one another until the day when one of them chokes on food and is saved by another writer. This incident makes Iona realize that she wants to learn more about her fellow writers, and she begins to develop relationships with them as she rides, inserting herself into their issues, helping solve their problems, and even becoming friends with some of them. I loved the characters and the way they develop, interact, and come together. The stellar writing, the storyline, and the ending. Infused with heart and humor, this book demonstrates the importance of community and the ability of relationships to change people's lives, while also serving as a reminder that people should not be judged by their appearance. I highly recommend this gem of a book and was so sad when it ended. And that's Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting by Claire Pooley. This has been one that has been on my TBR that I just haven't gotten to yet, but it does sound really in line with what's been working well for me this year, which is kind of strangers connecting and feeling uplifted. So I definitely want to check this one out. I think you would really like it. Oh, good. I'm glad. That was so much fun. And I so enjoyed seeing which ones we overlapped on and hearing your favorites. And now I have several more that I need to add to my list, it sounds like. I know. Every time I chat with you, my list just keeps growing. And (laughs) that's so much fun, though, too. I love that. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast, and I look forward to our next episode. Thank you for having me. It's always such a pleasure. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly. And our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. I hope you'll tune in next time. Coming up. On 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.